Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 16. This is going to be our text for this morning, Acts chapter 16. Going to take a different look at a familiar story. Acts chapter 16, we're going to begin reading with verse 25. This is going to be the text for our lesson today. It says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Now get this picture in your mind. It is pitch black dark. They're in the prison cell. They've been flogged, but they're singing praises to God. Let's keep reading. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. All at once, the prison doors were opened, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul who was inside that pitch-dark cell and looked out and saw in the light of the jailer's torch what was going on, Paul cries out, Don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and all your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And then immediately he and all his family were baptized. And the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and all his house. Would you bow as we begin with a prayer? Father, I thank you for the story of the Philippian jailer, and I thank you for the hope of the gospel that he demonstrates. Father, I pray that we might remember his example in the darkest chapter of our life, and that we might have the hope to carry on. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen. Do you you perform last rites, preacher? That was a startling question from an unfamiliar source. I was working at my desk one day, and I looked up, and there was a young man standing in my doorway. I had never seen him before. And he was asking me a really unusual question. Do you you perform last rites? He looked to be about 20, 21 years old. And so I said, well... Who is this for? He said, for me. Now, he looked a little bit disheveled, but otherwise healthy. So I asked the next obvious question. When do you expect to die? In about 20 minutes. And I thought to myself, this young man needs more than a lecture on the difference between the Catholic Church and the New Testament Church. I said, well, how do you expect to die? He said, I'm going to the Washita River. I'm going to drive my car off the bridge in 20 minutes. So tell me, preacher, do you or don't you, do you perform last rites? When someone takes their life, 
It's unsettling for everyone who's left behind, for the family, for the school, for the congregation, for the community. And this can be a problem for all ages, but I think it's especially tragic when it is a young person who has their whole life ahead of them and they give up on life. And it is no secret that young people today are growing up in a spiritually sick society. Did you realize that the suicide rate in the United States for teenagers has increased some 300% since the 50s? And yet this is something that we in the church rarely talk about, and I'm wondering why that is. And I've been thinking about that, and I've come up with maybe three different explanations. Why this silence on the subject? Well, first of all, it's because of the finality of suicide. When someone succeeds in taking their life, it ends a discussion that desperately needs to continue. And those of us who are left behind have all sorts of questions that we want to ask, have all sorts of things that we want to say, but the person is no longer with us. And so sometimes we retreat into an uncomfortable silence. The second reason I'm convinced we don't talk about it is because of an or, our ordinary, natural reaction when someone we love is gone is to experience grief and sorrow. But when they die at their own hand, then there's also all sorts of conflicting emotions such as confusion and questioning. And a lot of folks don't know how to reconcile those conflicting emotions, so they don't say anything. And the third answer I've come up with as to why we rarely talk about this is because some folks believe that if you mention suicide, you're going to actually encourage people to think about it and consider it. And in reality, the opposite is true. If you see someone who seems unusually depressed, who is going through some unexplainable moods or behavior changes, and especially if they make odd comments like, you're going to miss me when I'm gone, or they give away their cherished possessions saying, I guess I don't need this anymore, don't be afraid to ask. Are you feeling okay? Do we need to talk about anything? And especially, are you thinking of harming yourself? Now, if they're not, you're not going to do any harm. And if they have been considering it, very often they're going to be relieved to get it out in the open and talk about it. But don't be afraid to speak up. This morning, I want to break the silence regarding a very difficult subject. First of all, because the Bible has a lot to say about it. But more importantly, because the Scriptures give us the alternative to ending our life. And that is mending our life by the grace of God. Th that young man in my office, I'll call, him, I'll call him Jason, that's not his real name, but it's close enough, was standing there defiantly in my doorway waiting for me to answer. And there I sat, casting about for something to say to this complete stranger who had come into my office announcing his intention to end his life. And as I sat there, I happened to look over his shoulder and out the office window onto the parking lot, and I saw his car. I said, hey, isn't that a 69 GTO? He said, yeah, with a first hint of a smile. He said, I refinished it myself. And I looked, and I said, man, that is a classic. Doesn't that have dual carburetors and a V8? And he said, well, yeah, it does, and, and, and four on the floor, too. I said, yeah, I thought so. I said, you know... It'd be a shame to ruin a good car like that. 
And he said, you think so? I said, oh, yeah, man, there aren't many of them left. And, and I said, and besides, driving off those concrete bridges isn't as easy as you think. You might just end up wrecking your car, and then you'd have to walk back to town, and then where would you be? He said, you know, I never thought about that. And I said, I tell you what, why don't you come in and sit down and tell me what this is all about? Why do, why do, why do folks take their own life? Well, estimates are from a quarter to a third of those who commit suicide could be classified as mentally ill. Did you see the news uh, last spring? Uh, Rick Warren, a well-known Baptist pastor, his son committed suicide after years of struggling with mental illness. And Rick Warren has said that he wants to dedicate the rest of his life to making clear that people get the message that mental illness is not a sin or a shame or a weakness. And we need to say that. Another factor is drug and alcohol use. As many as 10,000 suicides a year are alcohol-related, but it's not always an impulsive act. Sometimes the person will have thought about it before acting, and often, about 40% of the time, it's because people are emotionally upset over something. And they're not thinking clearly. Their despair, particularly young people, is often based on an unrealistic perspective. They get into this mode of thinking, well, things are never going to get better, or they have unrealistic expectation. Young people who haven't lived long enough to experience all of the normal ups and downs of life may fall prey to the pitfall of perfectionism, thinking, oh, it's the, it's the end of the world if I don't make the honor roll, or I'm not the most popular person in school, or I'm not as attractive as I think I ought to be, or if people are saying ugly things about me on the Internet. And young people's unrealistic expectations may lead to unrealistic disappointments. You know, those of us who are older, who've been through some of those up and down, ups and downs of life, you know, we really ought to be honest enough to say, all of us struggle and get discouraged and have doubts and disappointments. I don't want young people to come to church and think that they are atypical, they are abnormal, that everybody else at church has got it together and we never have any problems and we never have any depression and we never have any low points in life because that is simply not true. All of us are going to go through a dark chapter in our life. So Jason and I talked for a while. And gradually, his story came out. He had a 15-year-old girlfriend, and she had skipped school to go out riding in his car. Her father found out and refused to allow him to date her again. And when Jason tried to see the girl anyway, the dad called the police, and that landed him in trouble with the law because she was underage. And so now Jason was convinced that without this particular girl, his life wasn't worth living. Although it may sound paradoxical, suicide is often an attempt to avoid pain. And I'm not think, talking about physical pain. I'm talking about emotional pain, the pain of, of loss, of getting dumped by a girlfriend, of embarrassment, of guilt, of disappointment, of despair. And our society is not a very good society that readily accepts pain or endures hardships with grace. Listen to me. 
emotional pain may very well be a signal that there is something unhealthy in our life that does need to die. But not us. It just may mean there's something in our life that we need to change by God's grace. Now, what could I say to Jason that would make a difference? Well, I didn't try to cheer him up by giving him a false hope. On the contrary, I said, son, you are in trouble. And you may very well spend some time in jail. But then I went on to point out the obvious. I said, son, if you kill yourself, your young girlfriend is going to be heartbroken for a while. But son, she's 15 years old. And it's not realistic to expect a young girl to devote the rest of her life to your memory. The truth of the matter is, she's going to grow up, she's going to get over you, and she's going to find somebody else, and meanwhile, you're going to be cold in the ground. And so I said, here's your choices. You can kill yourself, and she'll grow up and find another boyfriend. Or you can settle your debt with the law, and when you get over it, you'll still be around when your girlfriend grows up. Or you might find somebody you like better. I said, but son, driving your car off the Washita River Bridge is not going to get you anything you really want. Suicide demonstrates a lack of faith in the goodness and the power of God. It is fundamentally a rejection of the provision and the purposes of God. Because you see, we are morally responsible for the stewardship of all of the resources God has given us. And that includes our life. To take our own life is to deprive God of the opportunity to use us, to bless us, to forgive us. But if we will trust God, our faith can help us hang on through the dark night of the soul. Some of us here remember a movie star by the name of Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn Monroe has become a kind of an icon of the sensuality and emptiness of our time. Arthur Miller, the playwright, was married to Marilyn for a while, and in his autobiography he tells about watching her descend into the depths of despair and depression and drug use. He was alarmed at her growing dependence on barbiturates, and one evening after the doctor had been persuaded to give her yet another shot, Miller said he stood over her watching Marilyn Monroe as she slept. And he writes, I found myself straining to imagine miracles. What if she were to wake up, and I were able to say, God loves you, darling. And she were able to believe it. And then he concludes on this sad, pathetic note. He said, how I wish I still had my religion and she had hers. Isn't that sad? Christians have one of the most healthy and encouraging messages available. One of the most precious things the gospel offers is hope. Because of the grace of God, we have grace. We have the opportunity to start all over again. Let me give you two case studies. Remember Judas 
He let the Lord down. Remember Simon Peter? He let the Lord down. Both of them let their Lord down. Both of them sinned against Jesus, disappointed their Lord, and both of them were filled with grief over what they had done. But Judas responded with self-destruction, making himself useless to God. Simon Peter responded with sincere repentance and became a powerfully effective model of the grace of God. Now let's get to our text, the story of the Philippian jailer. Because the Philippian jailer could not see into the darkness of the jail cell, he misunderstood the situation and was about to take his own life. From their vantage point, looking out, Paul and Silas could see the reality of the moment. And they intervened to prevent the jailer from making a permanent mistake in response to a temporary misunderstanding. Some of us may remember the humorist Art Buckwall, who had uh, columns in the paper. Art Buckwall used to say, in his, own, in, his, in his unusual way, he used to say, Never commit suicide! You may change your mind a month later. Well, if you can understand the logic of that, then you can understand my message this morning. If you are ever in a situation in which it appears there is no way out, I want you to remember three things. Number one, God specializes in the impossible. Number two, God's people are willing to listen, and they really do care. So pick up the phone and talk to someone. And number three, if we will be patient in pain and faithful in failure, God will have something better for us later on. Oh, wait, you're wanting to know what happened to Jason, right? Well, in his case, his life did get worse for a while. He lost his young girlfriend, he went to jail, and he served several months. And when I visited him in jail, he occasionally went through some deep, deep bouts of discouragement. But by God's grace, he survived, he got over it, and he went on with his life. In fact, after he was released from jail, he found a new girlfriend, he went into the army, and the last time I heard from him, he was enjoying his responsibilities as, of all things, the chaplain's assistant. By God's grace, he survived. Have you ever heard the expression, it's always darkest just before the dawn? That's exactly what we see in the story of the Philippian jailer. And if we ever find ourselves in his position, despairing because we cannot see in the darkness of the moment, I want us this morning to take heart from the end of the story. In just a moment, he went from near suicide to new life. How does the story end? He was about to kill himself. Paul and Silas intervene. He rushes in. He brings in life and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
And before the dawn came, that man was a child of God and was filled with joy. That is a tremendous example of the principle of our lesson this morning. Always remember the alternative to ending our life is mending our life by the grace of God. How about you? Have you done what the Philippian jailer did? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus as the Son of God? Have you been immersed into His death and His burial and His resurrection? Are you living faithfully for Him with that hope that's held out in the gospel? We're going to sing a song of encouragement this morning. If you need the hope that Jesus gives, let us know right now as we stand and sing together.